0: Hey, all Welcome to Beyond Consulting, the podcast dedicated to helping our listeners navigate a career after consulting. I'm Stephen Haug, host of Beyond Consulting and director at ECA Partners. Each week on the podcast, we host folks who have spent time in consulting, but have since made a pivot or a career change. Before we get started, I want to thank ECA Partners for sponsoring Beyond Consulting. ECA is an executive search and on-demand consulting firm specializing in former consultants and private equity. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with David Braid, Vice President of New Business Development at the Center for Anxiety and former Senior Associate at PwC. David, welcome to Beyond Consulting. Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. Well, great. I've been looking forward to our conversation, David. Certainly want to dive into your PWC days and the work that you're doing now. But I'd love to start way, way back at the beginning, because I know that you went to college at Juilliard. Is that right?
1: Yes. So I uh, was in a pre-college program at Juilliard, I was very musical from an early age. Our parents, even though they themselves weren't musically trained, made it a point of emphasis in our childhood to make music part of our lives. And typical, taking you know piano lessons from age five or six. All you know, I have four brothers lining up all five of us one after the other on Sundays, and then uh, turning that into middle school band, and then high school orchestra, and really parlaying that into attending Juilliard, the conservatory in their pre-college program, with an eye to eventually going into their full-time conservatory. You know, post high school. I made a sort of career pivot and went on to the University of Michigan to School of Music while still trying to pursue sort of an academic future. And then I consequently retired at the age of 19, two years into my college career, and sort of made a full-time focus and shift to sort of the business world, where I majored in economics and psychology at the University of Michigan, really with an eye towards joining a consulting group post-graduation. So that's sort of a story in itself in that I decided to take time off after college to go volunteer overseas for three years as an EMT. It uh, was something that I was just passionate about and thought it'd be six months or a year. It turned into three years and eventually, you know, decided, okay, it's time to sort of come back to the United States and uh, start your career. And, you know, I reached back out to all of our contacts, you know, at the consulting companies, even at few college classmates that were in these consulting groups and uh, really interviewed around and ultimately went back to get my MBA at Baruch College, which is in the city where I'm from, from New York City. And then started up at PwC, as you mentioned, and sort of worked my way up to senior associate where we were sort of working in the private equity valuation group. That was sort of a niche uh, carve out and a new sort of field for them at the time as well.
0: That's really See, because it, it, it sounds like you were able to do a
1: lot of fun and exciting stuff early in your career. You started your own business as well. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So I started a sushi kiosk in 2014 that started as sort of an experiment to put sushi in a sports bar, which was around the corner from Baruch where I was attending classes. And, you know, uh, they were evening classes. So following the evening classes, you know, you go around the block and want to get a drink and have a beer, watch a game. And uh, the idea of putting a healthier option in a sports bar, you know, never been done before. And uh, we had sort of struck up a conversation with the bar owners at Promenade Bar and Grill, which was around the corner, and. Uh, sort of implemented then, had a sort of full-service sushi kiosk, a sort of pop-up sushi bar in that sports bar, which actually served me uh, well at PwC because we'd always uh, order sort of sushi for the office and uh, became sort of something to talk about, you know, sort of within the office. And people always loved sort of supporting, you know, a fellow uh, sort of co-worker and look forward to those sushi platters and sort of was a, a fun little side business that, sort of gave up, you know, as I moved on, you know, and progressed in my career at PWC, sort of didn't see myself going to the catering or food business at all, even though it is a fun business. But you definitely have to be fully present to be successful in that and sort of uh, put that pet project to the side and sort of moved on to the consulting work at PWC and then ultimately to where I am now at Center for Anxiety as uh, sort of the VP of new business development.
0: Interesting. So you started this business while you were in your MBA program, just with a, a local restaurant.
1: Yeah, and it really was, you know, I've always been an entrepreneur, but it really was Baruch's focus, you know, on the finance and entrepreneur. So it was really sort of sparking, you know, becoming aware of opportunities and really just I'd gone to this bar a bunch of times and the owner became friendly with myself and sort of had empty space and I said you know let's convert it and see where it goes and it was a big boon for his business you know bars usually make money off the drinks and the food you know sort of a loss leader and it turned out that sushi was a win-win for everyone that men can now come watch their game and their spouses or girlfriends could have a healthier option while there and uh, have good drinks or good cocktails and sort of was a win-win and really uh an interesting experiment at times. So that was sort of my early days of my MBA program, and sort of after about two years, I I sort of gave it up, and you know, sort of gave it back to the bar to for them to sort of continue on with it. okay good. So can you still get sushi at that bar? So actually, COVID. It was one of those casualties of COVID. You know, bars in general, especially with rent in the city. You know, the <laughs> when I knew what they were paying in rent, I was happy. I was not running the bar. So it was sort of one of those casualties of COVID that unfortunately is still not around today. But uh, that was my interest in sushi. And anytime I go to a sushi place, I uh, definitely have some appreciation as to the business design behind it, as well as the margins and sort of how it operates. And i always looking to sort of give pointers and tips to wherever I, I dine. Well, good.
0: Let's dive into a bit more detail around your PwC days. You mentioned that early on in your career, early in your college days, you recognized consulting as a path that you wanted to pursue. Was it what you imagined when you're in college, thinking about consulting? Once you got into it, were there any surprises around what you actually uh, discovered the job to be?
1: Yeah, I think consulting spoke to me when I was in college and that consulting is about And again, we had a class at Michigan where, you know, local business could apply to sort of partner with us and sort of have, you know, these students help them give tips. And it was a really unique experience in that people go into culture, I think, because they want to help. They want to be of help. They like helping. You know, they feel like they're doers and they're solution oriented and just sort of action takers. And I think the work at PwC was along those same lines, albeit more on sort of the back end valuation due diligence side, you know, less so sort of on the ground, boots on the ground, sort of management. You no know, meeting with management, it was more meeting with financial sort of counterparts. But it was great because you're still diving into how businesses operate, getting to the meat and potatoes of what makes this business click, why is this business successful, where can they improve? You're really doing a deep dive on all their sort of operations. So for sort of from a back end, you know, you're doing valuation reviews of companies that you know, we're not public, so you're sort of seeing, you know, for the first time and really trying to evaluate and make fair value projections and fair value valuations, fair market value valuations for the stakeholders. So it's really, you still have that piece of wanting to help, wanting to put forth sort of, and it's more art. I think than science, although obviously there is some structure and some standard, you know, metrics which you use. But again, it's helping. It's being solution oriented. It's being, you know, sort of taking action. I think it was similar, and I enjoyed it from the back end because I like knowing how things work and sort of. I think that's the heart of every consultant is, you know, asking question. Well, why can it be better? Why this? Why that? So I think it was along the lines, albeit less similar to a lot of my uh, colleagues and friends who were sort of more on the ground with different sort of consulting aspects to it, but uh, still very much enjoyed the work there and has served me well, definitely, as, as sort of came on to Center for Anxiety. And it's a different kind of consulting work, right? It's taking a small business and saying, okay, what, you know, how are we sort of more action oriented? So how are we going to grow this? And it's really more hands-on and using sort of that background to build what it is today. So I'd say it's similar. And I thought maybe I'd be more sort of on the ground, although where I am now, I think is more of that ideal situation where I thought I would land. But the backend financial work was definitely very insightful and helpful as well.
0: So a typical project for you at PwC would be, you know, it's a private company would come to you and say, hey, we're thinking about going public. Can you tell us what we should price our stock at?
1: Yeah, so it'd be either a private company or the private equity funds or hedge fund coming to us saying, hey, we have a position in this company that's planning to go public, what are we valuing our proceeds at? What's our shares worth? Where do we sit on the cap table or on the stack table? So we'd have, you know, and there's some pretty well-known names. They're public now, so I can mention that it's no inside information, but you know, we looked at Uber, we looked at Airbnb, we looked at Spotify, Dropbox, Pinterest, just some of those that were the hot companies at the time. So that'd be sort of a typical project where we'd go in, you know, we'd also work sort of the audit side at obviously which they're known for in terms of working with them, putting together sort of what we felt with fair market valuation of A, the company, also B, of the position that those particular funds or private equity uh, individuals had in that specific company.
0: How long were your projects? For just a few weeks, a few months, how long did it take to be able to come to the answers that you would ultimately give to your clients?
1: It depends how forthcoming they were with their information. And typically, you'd have the same, you'd see maybe similar companies annually, and that, you know, if they hadn't gone public yet, you're still trying to determine a fair market valuation for the position that the funds have in order to market to any future investors or even their sort of tax liabilities. I'd say, you know, a typical client, and again, there's multiple people working on the client, but I'd say, you know, usually, you know, your work on that specific client would be anywhere between you know, six to 10 weeks of heavy, heavy work sort of during the busy season. And then obviously throughout the year, just checking in, you know, updating your numbers and stuff like that. So I'd say usually six to 10 weeks. And again, depending on the type of position, type of company, how forthcoming or how much of the financial you know, package we had and, and so on and so forth. But I thought it was great. And also, you're working with different team members and even different partners throughout PwC and different, again, financial counterparts at the companies themselves and trying to get more information and sort of, you know, you submit your sort of list of uh, due diligence questions and trying to get more response to try to get a more nuanced uh, you know evaluation.
0: That's interesting. I think that a lot of folks, when they think about consulting and management consulting, they think about someone who designs a plan or a strategy and then hands that off. But in your case, it's very easy to or everyone's going to see how close you are to being correct. Right. You say this is the number it's probably going to be. And then uh, you actually see that number a few months or a year down the road.
1: Yeah. And so at the time, a lot of these companies had not gone public while I was still at PwC, but, you know, they did afterwards. But there was a lot of disagreement. I would say Uber was the big one for us. Where just the way they got to the numbers, it was a big gap in what we had determined was fair market, and that just sort of strikes out to me just as the biggest one that I remember going back and forth. And ultimately, the public market sort of proving that where we were a lot lower than what they were trying to go public with. You know, obviously we work. You know, they they weren't going public, and we were when I was at PWC. But that's sort of another example of that sort of disconnect between. The company itself and the other financial auditors, they're saying, no, you, you know, you're not even close to what you, you think you're getting. Obviously, there are other factors at work, but sort of it was an interesting, you know, dialogue. And these companies, you know, they it's sort of that balance of you want to keep your clients, but you also need to be true to the, the numbers, right? And the financial data and uh so, yeah, I mean, it's, it was definitely interesting to see and sort of predict knowing from within which companies really had it together, which ones were sort of creating metrics to the, you know, sort of you see this now in public markets of creating new metrics that sort of fit their financial model. But yeah, so it was always, you know, we obviously couldn't take part in any sort of public offering or even disclose that we were working on certain companies. And like I said, most of them went public ultimately after I'd already left. When I was there, it was a tough market to go public in and sort of picked up again. But yeah, it was definitely interesting to see where you felt you came in, uh, where they ultimately went public and where sort of they've settled now in sort of the open public markets.
0: Were you effectively setting the... Price per share for the offering, or were you just making a
1: recommendation? No, not at all. So we weren't on that investment banking side. We were just sort of for the funds and our clients. We're setting what their value would be based on what we thought the valuation of the company would go public at, uh, or even be worth, which helps them then determine their fund value, right? Sort of, you know, they can claim they have X amount under assets or certain valuations, you know, or pitch it even to potential investors, but. We weren't setting the actual go-to-market price. We were just sort of internally setting a fair market valuation for our clients that held positions in these companies. Okay,
0: good. So making them giving them the numbers so they can forecast. And ultimately, whether
1: they wanted to purchase, you know, make that sort of guess. Do I want to purchase at whatever price? I had. ultimately, obviously, they're where they stood on the cap table. Usually, they were getting a lot lower than what obviously the public price was. But determining what that valuation would be is from a tax liability, audit liability, and sort of just fund value perspective as well.
0: You moved on from PwC in 2017.
1: Whenever you joined
0: PwC, did you imagine that to be your career? Were you going to be a partner and go to spend your career at PwC? Or did you always imagine it as sort of a three-year job and then you'd move on to do something else?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, you know, you, ha, you know, when you go to college and you're in the financial world or consulting world and MBA, you know, sort of the big four is sort of the dream, right? You get a job at a big four. It's all everyone talks about. So I think when I got there, I was, you know, focused on being there as long as you know possible. And definitely want to give a shout out to uh, two partners in general, Sean Elbaum and Noel Moynihan, who played a crucial role in my experience. And I loved it. Loved the work. I just got to a point where and today in general, the younger generation sort of people our age are sort of like, do I really want to work in a cubicle for the next in the same place. And this is pre-COVID, obviously now post-COVID, you know, there's remote working and there's flexibility, but, you know, do I want to really come to the same office, you know, for the next 30 years and sort of uh, spend the rest of my life here? So there's some people that love it. They love that sort of structure of every day, the same schedule. I'm sort of not like that. I think that's also why consulting spoke to me and why I sort of started my own business and sort of, I'm more of a, I need to be, you know, doing things and I'm not a cubicle person. So ultimately when I sort of, graduated from my MBA program, and I sort of actually met the founder serendipitously, I was sort of like, oh, maybe, you know, there is something here, even though mental health was an industry that I actually, you know, had a negative experience with, and I, you know, thought for sure, you know, it's, you know, they're not helpful, they're a scam, you know, they just keep you on because that's their caseload, and they need you for their caseload, and so I know, you know, if you had told me that I'd be working in mental health, I would say, you know, not in a million years. I um, mean, the pivot was really just through a strategic just risk saying, you know, I go try it out. You know, initially my thought process was I'll give that two years. And if it doesn't work, you can always go back to PwC. They have a term that's called boomerang, which is very famous that it's for people who have left PwC and then ultimately come back. So I was like, hey, you know, they even have a setup for it. So why not take sort of a risk and sort of see what I could do with this? And since then I haven't looked back and um, it's been a great five and a half, almost six years now where I've been here. Tell us a little bit more about the Center for Anxiety. What did the organization look like when you
0: joined? What does it look like now? And what's your job at the company?
1: Yeah, good question. The so Center for Anxiety, we are a group mental health practice. So, similar to a dental practice or a pediatrician practice or a general sort of physical health practice, where we employ psychologists, social workers, mental health counselors, sort of mental health professionals on a full time basis. We have offices in New York and Boston. We have six currently, and we're opening up a seventh now in Princeton, New Jersey. And essentially, we provide mental health services. You know, our, I'd say, niche per se, is that we can provide a full service under one roof. So for instance, if you have a child that needs certain services, you need parenting, couples work, you need more intensive services, something that an individual practitioner can't provide to you, just physically they don't have the resources to provide to you. That's sort of the niche that we've developed as sort of this step up, but also step down from these inpatient residential facilities. So we really feel that that treatment gap that exists within the space but also today, you know, you try to get an appointment with any sort of psychologist or psychiatrist or you name it and it's you know usually a ten week wait list, you know, if that, you know. So uh, really through our group practice model and kind of scale, we can get people to within two to three days. We have a lot of options, you know, in terms of preference, specialties. It's really building a unique sort of one stop shop mental health practice. That's a win-win in that, you know, if you do have to collaborate with multiple clinicians, you're not waiting for someone else to get back to you. It's two people within the same practice that can go talk to each other down the hall, you know, or have a case consultation meeting, you know? So it's really trying to optimize and efficientize the mental health uh, space, which as we know, post COVID is only the, uh, has uh, the mental health crisis only exacerbated and sort of been brought more to light and more awareness on that topic. So when I joined, we were about six staff, one office in Brooklyn, and um, now we're, like I said, up to six offices, 80 staff, eighty full-time staff and soon to be a seventh office. Uh, so if you anyone looking, if anyone's listening and they know any mental health professionals or uh, have any friends or colleagues that are interested in working for a group practice, please feel free to reach out to us and visit our website, centerforanxiety.org. Sorry, Stephen, if that's a shameless plug, but I just couldn't pass out the opportunity. We are currently hiring and actively hiring. And like I said, if you know anyone who's interested, please feel free to have them reach out to us and see if they're a good fit and sort of start that interview process.
0: Of course, David, I appreciate you mentioned that you have some open positions. Anything on the business side of the organization? Any openings there for the consultants that are listening and thinking about their next position?
1: Yeah, so we're always expanding that side of things. Obviously, the clinical, we always, our main priority is making sure that the clinical quality and clinical infrastructure is there uh, because otherwise you don't have your business. You know, that's sort of our product per se. On the business side of things, we're, you know, growing as we're growing. Our administrative and sort of operations team is growing. I would say those that are interested in adult field, you could always reach out. We don't have any current openings, but as we're growing and strategically thinking about expansion, we are open to sort of filling those positions. You know, right now we're just sort of in the Northeast geography area. We, are, we have plans to open up in Connecticut, sort of covering that sort of Northeast. So you have Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, but we do have plans to expand to other markets as well. So I would say if there are people that are listening that have an interest, I would say reach out, just get in touch, you know, get in contact, happy to speak and sort of put sort of on the radar and that way, you know, when we do sort of open up those positions, we have someone that we can reach out to and say, hey, you know, we just opened the position. If you're interested, happy to talk. And just in general, I'm happy to connect with any other consultants out there and just sort of, uh, I'm a people person. So if there's any topics that you find interesting and anything in general, I'm I'm always available on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to find me. You can message me and uh, happy to sort of set up a time to speak.
0: Well, good. appreciate that, David. I do want to hear a bit more about your job in particular at the company. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah. So it's probably a consultant's nightmare in that if you were to look from it from an outside, it's like, how is he doing? What Or why is he doing You know, from an efficiency standpoint? Or why is he doing three different jobs? I think the key really is, and before I get into sort of what I do, the key is on an operation like this, the main thing that you have to keep control of is your labor expense, like in any business, sort of needing to operate lean, especially on the non-revenue generating side of things. So an admin staff would be a non-revenue generating, even though indirectly they're providing more infrastructure and efficiency. And we have patient care managers and patient experience managers, stuff like that, that are indirectly revenue generating, that they keep the patients happy and the clients happy and sort of, I think, part of a, a practice. So I would say for us, we've kept it very lean. you know As we grow, obviously we'll have to add on positions there, but Sort of I wear many different hats here and as we've grown, I've been able to delegate off parts of it and sort of have direct reports and I'm reporting on certain parts of that, which I meet with on a weekly basis. But essentially what I've sort of slid myself into at this point as my title now reflects is sort of new business development, sort of new offices, new markets new programming, looking for new areas to improve either partnerships. You know, we do have a, not just a B2C part of us, but we do have a B2B where we work with workplaces. We have wellness and workplace workshops that we provide to businesses and small businesses and large businesses and management training and sort of bringing sort of mental health awareness and education to the workplace. So focusing on that, we have partnerships. One partnership that I'm particularly proud of is with the 9-11 Memorial Fund, where we provide outpatient services to survivors of 9-11. That's sort of through Mount Science hospital which is local to the new york area over here so that's sort of a partnership that we forged Uh, About four years ago where they were looking for an outpatient provider to provide services while they provide sort of more of the physical services, sort of the imaging, the screening from a physical wellness standpoint, but they were really looking for a outpatient mental health practice to provide the mental wellness parts of things. So there's a lot of people that have trauma and uh, other prevailing sort of mental illnesses that sort of were never talked about before. So it's sort of something that we're able to give back to our local community, you know, a city that I grew up in, a city that we have practices and offices in. So day-to-day, you know, it's also playing more of a management role is setting uh, sort of initiatives, goals, you know, targets, you know, a lot of day-to-day stuff is taken care of, but sort of making sure that there's processes, that there's systems, which early on, it was sort of like, just you got to get it done and get it done. And, you know, systems sometimes can bog you down when you're early on, but as you grow, it's like, hey, no, now we need systems and developing systems, building infrastructure. And that's been interesting, sort of that shift from, you know, even going from, 20 to 30 employees, and then we went from 30 to 60, and then 60 to 80, you know, all different steps of creating new systems, uh, new processes, and so that sort of takes up I'd say most of my day. So it's really focusing on the rocks of the big operating, big decisions. I'd say there are fewer decisions I make on a daily basis, but they're more impactful decisions, uh, you know, where sometimes you feel less busy and that you're not constantly busy, but ultimately your decisions are the ones that impact the direction and future of the company. So it, there is uh, just constantly staying abreast of the industry and trends and, you know, just make sure what we're doing, you know, we're in line, like our benefits package, are we even competitive at this point? You know, staying, make sure that we're competitive, uh, make sure we're paying for our market salary. Make sure that programming is up to date, you know, what's out there. Uh, I've even made intakes at other practices just to see is our intake process something that we can improve, you know, let's see what other practices are doing. So uh, always just, you know, constantly looking for ways to tinker and think about how to make it more efficient and and more patient friendly, because that's really what it's ultimately about is removing those barriers and making it frictionless, both for your patients, but also your employees, your employees, people forget, you know, they're also your, uh, you know, customers, you have to really make sure that they're happy and that you're treating them well and really investing in that employee experience. That's a great point, David. And I
0: appreciate you sharing your career story with us here today. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, I would say you never know where opportunities knock. So definitely just, if you're just looking for them, you know, you'll find them maybe, you know, you you don't know what to do next or you're working in a consulting job and you don't know what the next big idea will be. You know, at one point looked into laundromats, you know, they were pretty good. It's just enough time for that. It's just sort of, if you're just curious and always looking how things work and just staying abreast on certain things, you can usually find opportunities or just next career moves wherever they, like I said, I never thought I'd be in mental health, but uh, sort of through a serendipitous meeting and sort of thinking about it, it sort of led, you know, down this path and I would say you don't have to like pigeonhole yourself to an industry or to uh, a certain path, although if you're lucky enough to know what you want to do, great. But, you know, those that sort of don't, that's okay too. It's just sort of living life with open eyes that, you know, sort of noticing things or just uh, noticing, like even when you walk into a store or a supermarket or a barbershop, you know, it's just sort of, you know, hey, are you really operating efficiently or stuff like that? And Some some great stories out there and great startups of how they start just sort of trying to solve problems. So I would say, you know, always just keep your eyes open and look around for uh, opportunities if you're not sure what to do next. But, you know, they're out there and there's endless, endless opportunities. You just have to be open and aware of what's out there.
0: Thanks for that, David. And thanks so much for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having us, uh, or having me, (laughs) Stephen. I guess I have a split (laughs) personnel. But uh, thanks for having me, and uh, definitely a pleasure to give a glimpse. And I hope people can glean any sort of insights. And like I said, if anyone's interested in getting in touch with me, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. And I'm happy to speak with anyone on any topic. And sort of a people person, just naturally curious. So uh, if you're not mental health related, definitely happy to connect and sort of just uh, meet other people out there.
0: Thanks for that, David. I expect you'll probably have a few folks interested in that and uh, might be reaching out to you.
1: Awesome. I may have to be careful what I wish for, but uh, I'm happy to, to make the time to, uh, to speak with people.